Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for being here today. Uh, if you're new, and I know we've had some new people joining us here in the building and online, welcome to First Free Church. I'm Adam. I'm the senior pastor here, and we're so glad you're joining us to worship together. I am really excited about what we just saw. Wasn't that cool? Camp Sputnik is an awesome opportunity to partner with. And the culture is great as well. Bryson, thanks for being here today and for sharing with us about what's happening there. It's just really neat. If you didn't get to see the video from last week about the culture, that was great too. That's online. But the culture and Kemp Sputnik, two great ministries that we get to partner with and support this year for Take Back Black Friday. So please make sure that you are a part of that. What a great opportunity to make an impact, not just around the world, but also right here in our backyard in North St. Louis with Sail Me Free and the ministry that they have going there. It's awesome. Hey, we're in the book of Colossians right now, so if you haven't already, open up your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you need to, you can go to efree.org slash Bible. You'll find a link there at the top of the page that will get you to our text for today. And if you are new here, please go ahead and fill out a Connect card. You can do that online at efree.org slash Connect. Whether you are here in the building or you're watching online, we're so glad that you're here. You know, we are a church that is about 20% here and 80% there. So, to all of you who are watching at home, know that you aren't alone. You're actually in the majority right now, and uh, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for being here to worship God. Even though we're separated all over the place, we are still one church in the body of Christ, and we feel the, the connection that we have together through that. So efree.org slash connect if you're new or if you need prayer. We, we read those prayer requests regularly and pray for those, so please feel free to do that. Or if you want to learn more about a ministry or serve in a ministry, efree.org slash connect is the place to go. So, do you remember this TV show from back in the early 2000s, Extreme Makeover? How many of you remember that TV show? Extreme? Not, not the home edition, okay? Not the one with Ty. That was really cool. I, I always thought those bedrooms they did were amazing. But this is the Extreme Makeover, the original edition, the one where they would bring in some person that really needed help in their, in their fashion sense, right? And they needed a total makeover from clothes to hair to makeup to whatever it was going on. And they would bring them out at the end of this thing and their family and friends would be waiting for them. Maybe their mom would be there or their best friend or something like that. And they'd bring them out a completely different person. They just looked totally different and their loved ones would start to cry, you know, and they'd bring out this person with their new getup and everything and the, the star or, or victim, depending on how you look at it, would come out there in their whole new garb and everybody would think this is just an amazing transformation. Well, an extreme makeover is kind of how we need to think about the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. It is an extreme makeover that God wants to do in our lives. It's a total change, but not the hair and makeup kind of change, not the clothes kind of change, but the kind of change where it affects your whole internal being, and that affects, of course, your external being and how you interact with other people, how you treat other people, your relationships with other people. It's just a total life makeover with your, your heart and your mind and your behavior and, and what you value. It's, it's a different kind of life. And that's the plan that Jesus has for us when we trust in Him. We've been talking about this for weeks now in the letter to the Colossians, how this is a radical transformation that happens in our life. And last week what we saw was the before picture. You know, there's always a before and after picture with those things. The before picture was last week. Immorality and greed and rage and anger and malicious behavior and lying and all sorts of bad things that Paul says you need to throw those things off. In fact, he says in verse 7 of Colossians 3, you used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. That's the before picture. That's before you trusted in Jesus Christ. There's all these things that you had that were a part of your life that now Paul says, put them off, throw them off. In fact, he says, put them to death. You need to absolutely get rid of those things. Before we trusted in Christ, our, our lives were dominated by sinful thinking. 
And when we trust in Jesus Christ, we learned a few weeks ago that Jesus separates us from our sinful nature. We are no longer controlled by sin and sinful thinking, but we now have control over sin. It no longer dominates us, but we have power over it through Jesus Christ. And so there's this huge transformation that happens in us. And Paul wants us to put those things from before to death, to get rid of them, to throw them off. He uses this analogy of clothing. So on Extreme Makeover, I don't know if you ever watched this, but uh, when they would always go through the person's closet and they would pick out the worst clothes and they would throw them away. Do you remember this? And there'd be like a trash bin there and they'd be throwing away these clothes and the person there that's having the makeover is crying because it's like this amazing sweatshirt that they got 20 years ago that's got holes in it and paint all over it, but they still love it and they wear it all the time and they want to get rid of this thing. Why? Why do they have to throw away the old clothes? Because they don't want them to be tempted to put them back on again. They want them to completely get rid of those things so there's no risk of those ever coming back into their life and ruining their new lifestyle that they have thanks to extreme makeover. And then they get them new clothes and they have them wear the new clothes and they put the new clothes in their closet and that's all they want them to wear is the new stuff. So Paul wants us to do the same exact thing with our life before Christ and after Christ. There are things to take off. We talked about those last week. Put them to death. Don't be tempted to put them back on. And there are things to put on that are new, part of your new makeover in Jesus Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus, there's a new you, a new life you're supposed to have. And praise God, this week we get to talk about the after picture, the new life. Last week was heavy. That was all the bad stuff we're supposed to avoid. Today is all the good stuff we're supposed to put on. So this is going to be a good message, I trust, a a fun message, one that describes the new life you get to have if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. So if you're not there already, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be before we dive into this message. Why don't we open up with prayer together? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. Uh, Thank you for this week, this week where we focus on, on being thankful to you. And just um, by providence, Lord, this is the week that we are talking about the new life we have in you and all the attributes of that life, the, the clothes that we're supposed to put on. And we're reminded to be thankful, all the things we have to be thankful for, Lord. And so I pray that as we study your word together, you would, you would give us some insights into our life. Some, some of these clothes that we're going to talk about that we need to put on, Lord, maybe some of these we haven't done a very good job with. Some of them for different people, it's going to be different ones. There's a different article of clothing. Of, of heavenly clothing, the heavenly values, Lord, that we may struggle with. And so I pray that you would just hit each of us with the thing that we need to be hit with today. Help us to learn and take away what we need to take away from this so that we can grow to be more like you and fully live out this new life that you have blessed us with. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read this together, verses 12 through 15. We're going to actually go through it chunk by chunk and make some comments along the way. We're going to start in verse 12. Here is the after picture of new life in Christ. It starts out like this. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves. Now, you probably already know this. But holy means set apart. It doesn't mean perfect. It means set apart. It means dedicated, consecrated to God. Uh, Our kids have certain stuffed animals that are set apart. They are holy. There are certain stuffed animals, and for whatever reason, they happen to all be bears. They have many stuffed animals. But there are three bears that each of our kids, they love these stuffed animals. They are holy stuffed animals, and they are set apart for their use. They are sacred, sanctified, consecrated, dedicated, all the spiritual words. That's what those stuffies are for our kids, and they they love them. And they're pretty much only for their use. In fact, earlier this week, my four-year-old daughter saw my one-year-old daughter with her holy stuffy. And that was not okay. And she just walked right over and went, won't mine. 
That was her stuffy. It was set apart for her, right? Now, sometimes they, they do share. Later on in the week, she saw her sister was crying, and she actually brought over her stuffy and handed it to her to cheer her up. But that was a big deal. Why? Because it's a holy stuffy to her. It's set apart for her. It's her special stuffy. Now, those stuffies, those bears, are not the most expensive stuffed animals they have. And they're not even the nicest looking stuffed animals they have. In fact, because they are so loved and sacred and holy and treasured and used all the time, they're definitely not the nicest looking stuffies out there. But that's not what's important. These stuffies are not loved and cherished and holy because they are valuable. They are valuable because they are loved, right? They don't have value because there's anything so special intrinsically about them. The reason that they are valued and holy and set apart is because someone loves them and cherishes them and that makes them special. And it's a simple analogy, but it's the same sort of thing that God does with us. We are his holy people who he loves. He has set us apart for himself, He has decided that he is going to love us, and so we have value, not because we are perfect, not because there's anything amazingly special about us, but because he loves us, we are special, we are holy, we are set apart. Our lives are dedicated to God, both for now and for eternity, and so we are his holy people who he loves. Being his holy people means that we are committed to living life God's way. We've been talking about this the last couple weeks, living life God's way, and really it's just a better way to live. Even if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if if you want a good way to live, find out what the Bible says about the way God wants us to live, you're going to find it's a better way to live. Because he's the owner, he's the creator, he wrote the owner's manual. And so he has the, the inside scoop on the best way for us to live with the fewest regrets and the fewest consequences and, and he knows what we need to live like. So we seek the realities of heaven, as we said a couple weeks ago, not the things of earth. We think about the realities of heaven. We want to live out the heavenly values now, this new life that we have in Jesus Christ. That is how we are holy people. So since God chose you, verse 12, to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves. You must clothe yourselves. So he's back to the clothing analogy here. These are things he wants you to put on, and he's not wimpy about his language here. He's not saying you might want to do this. This would be a good idea. This is an imperative. You must do this thing. This is what you must do. You must clothe yourself. Put on the right clothes. Last week we talked about the wrong clothes, the wrong values, the wrong character traits that we don't want to have. And this analogy or metaphor rather of clothes is a good one because your clothes say a lot about you, right? Your clothes indicate what team you root for. That's a big deal. Your clothes might indicate the type of people you hang out with. Your clothes say a lot about the you that you want other people to see. They're they're your reputation. They're your testimony. Your clothes are a big deal. And so Paul is saying that not only should these things be inside of you, but they also need to be represented to other people. These things need to be live out. They need to be visible. They need to be seen. You're supposed to put on these clothes. And it's not just what represents your identity, but it's also what represents you to other people. In other words, there will be a noticeable difference in your life when you trust in Jesus. Not that you become perfect right away. We've talked about this before too. But there will be a difference in your life. Your desires will change. The way you interact with other people will change. In fact, if you try to live the same way you did before you trust in Christ, just because you want to fit in, what you'll find is that you feel terrible. For the first time, you'll feel awful about it because you'll know you're living a lie. The Holy Spirit is in you to try to guide you to live the right way and to convict you when you don't. 
Now, this change that we see when you trust in Jesus is a lot more pronounced for teenagers and adults than it is for kids, but it's the same change that happens there. The difference is we haven't had enough time to observe what happens when that child's sinful desires grow up into the adult manifestation of those sinful desires. It's the same sinful desires. It's the same sinfulness. It's the same lying and hatred and bitterness and anger and rebelliousness and all the same core sins are there. It's just adults do it a little bit differently than kids do. With kids, it shows up in the form of candies and toys and and simple rebelliousness and things like that. But there's still a change that happens. There's still new desires that happen when we trust in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you need to embrace that. You need to throw off the old clothes of the old way of life. You need to add these new clothes to your wardrobe. You need to have this extreme makeover. And he gives this long list. There's this list of articles of clothing that we are supposed to put on. And we're just going to take these one by one and talk about what each of them means. And I trust that there'll maybe be one of them that the Holy Spirit's going to just kind of touch your heart and say, this one has been a problem for you, hasn't it? This one you've struggled with. Let's work on that this week. So let's get into the first one. In verse 12, Paul says, clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy. Tender-hearted mercy. Now, you know I love the New Living Translation. Um, I think it is one of the most accurate translations to the original meaning of the text. Some people really like a literal translation, although even usually people that say that don't want a truly literal translation. They want something in the middle, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you took a truly literal translation of the original Greek words in Colossians 3.12 then instead of tender-hearted mercy, what you would read is, you are to clothe yourselves with affectionate bowels. Isn't that poetic? You are to have affectionate bowels. Why is that? Because back in the days of the Bible, the core of your emotion was not the heart, it was the intestines. And actually, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. When you are really upset at something and someone has done something that really, really hurts you, you get a pit in your, in your stomach. Not your, nobody says, I have a pit in my heart. When you are around someone that you really, really like and you have a crush on, you get butterflies in your stomach, right? And so the the intestines, the stomach, is where the core of the emotion is in Bible times, and it actually, it makes a lot of sense. If you want to be really, really biblical this Valentine's Day, give your wife a card that says, I love you with all of my spleen, or something like that. You know, that's really biblical and romantic at the same time. But what does it mean, affectionate bowels? Well, tender-hearted mercies is a, is a good translation of this, or compassionate mercy. The idea that's, that's intended by this phrase is the idea of mercy for other people, even when they do things that we don't like. We have affection for them, we care about them, we have compassion for them, even when they do something that rubs us the wrong way, that creates some friction. You know, we have this tendency to want mercy for ourselves and justice for others, would you agree with that? We want mercy for ourselves and justice for others. I can prove it to you. When was the last time you were pulled over by a police officer? You don't have to answer that. When you were last pulled over by a police officer, did you hope they would give you mercy? Were you hoping that they would let you off with a warning? Right? We want mercy for ourselves. Now, when was the last time somebody flew by you at 20 miles over the speed limit? What was your wish for them? Boy, and if you see a police officer pull them off to the side of the road, I hope he lets them off with a warning. No, of course not. It's like, I'm so glad they got him. That's it. Yeah, get him, take him down. You know, we like that. We want justice for others. We want mercy for ourselves. That's kind of how we operate as human beings. And the context for mercy here in this passage is relationships within the body of Christ, 
We're going to see that as we keep going. Paul is talking about how we interact with each other in the church. It's relationships in the body of Christ. And when someone else in the church does something that hurts us or offends us, do we give them mercy or do we resent them? We're going to see the same thought continue to develop as we go through the rest of the pieces of clothing. So let's move on to the next one, which is kindness. Kindness. There's something in relationships called the magic ratio. Here's where the magic ratio came from. There were these two researchers back in the 1970s who did a research project with a bunch of different couples to try to see if they could determine what predicted a happy couple versus an unhappy couple. In fact, they wanted to see if they could predict which couples would get divorced. And so they interviewed all these couples and they asked if they could watch them have conversations with each other. And they asked them to work through problems and solve conflicts that they had had and deal with tension in their relationships. And they observed and studied and took all kinds of notes. And then they followed up nine years later. And here's what they found. They were able to predict with over 90% accuracy which couples would get a divorce within the next nine years. That's pretty amazing. You know how they did it? They did it with one statistic, one ratio, the magic ratio, and that's this. They were able to figure out that the happy couples had five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. That's it. The happy couples that would stay married had five positive interactions for every one negative interaction. Now, negative interactions were things like criticism, contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling, dismissive body language like eye rolling. Some of you can just roll your eyes at the one you know that's the eye roller. Positive interactions are things like showing interest, expressing affection, communicating value, showing appreciation, expressing agreement, sharing encouragement, or doing something helpful. Essentially what the research shows is that it takes five acts of kindness to overcome one act that is unkind in the relationship. Now think about your relationships with other people. Your relationship with your spouse, with your other family members, with your friends, siblings, children, coworkers, people at church. If someone were to give you one dollar every time you said something kind to someone else, but take away five dollars every time you said something unkind to or about someone else, would you end up rich or in debt? See, there's an exchange ratio that happens here on the kindness. People are kind of like bank accounts. But there's an exchange rate that doesn't really go in our favor. You have to do five times as much positive, kind things as you do negative or unkind things in order to make up for that to have a healthy relationship. It's the magic ratio. The next one is humility. People are so self-centered today, aren't they? I mean, look around you. Look at the advertising happening this week. It's no longer Black Friday the Friday It then shifted to Black Friday the week, and now it's Black Friday the month. Pretty soon it's just going to be the first three months of leading up to Thanksgiving. It's just all Black Friday deals. We are so materialistic and self-centered, and we want more stuff and more things. And we we talked about this in our devotional between uh, the services. The worship team gets together. We do a devotional and prayer time together. We talked about how we can be so materialistic. And so self-centered, we we want it to be all about us. And, And honestly, I don't know if that's really a new thing. That's probably been the way humans have operated forever. In fact, I know that it has. But we sort of have an epidemic of self-centeredness where it's all about me. It's the opposite of humility. Now, unfortunately, we also have kind of an epidemic of false humility. And I find this to be particularly true among Christians. Maybe you've picked up on this. 
as Christians learn the importance of appearing to be humble, they learn to add certain things to their vocabulary to help them appear more humble. It's called self-deprecating phrases or humor. And we pick up, have you observed this? We pick up on certain phrases and certain jokes that if we will say them, it makes us come across as more humble than maybe we actually are. Or we try to communicate to people our humility by self-deprecating phrases or humor. Maybe that hasn't impacted you, but I've seen it a lot. Where sometimes that masks a very prideful and arrogant heart. But we've learned to sort of put up this smoke screen of self-deprecation to try to make people think that we're really humble. Now, understand, I'm not saying that everyone who uses self-deprecating humor does this. Okay, because all of you know someone like that. And if you're now thinking, well, now I know they're a super arrogant, prideful person, maybe not. Some people use self-deprecating humor because it's funny. And that's it. But for some people, it really is a way to appear to be humble when inside there is actually a very arrogant heart. And God looks at the heart. God cares about the heart. He cares about the motivation and what's inside. He wants true humility, not this expression of false humility that we have sometimes learned to portray. So what is true humility? True humility, the best way I can describe it, is the opposite of Burger King. uh, Apologies if you love Burger King, but true humility is the opposite of Burger King. What is Burger King's slogan? Anyone know? Have it your way. True humility is the opposite of Burger King. It's the opposite of having it your way. It's not about putting yourself down. It's about not having to get your way. Philippians 2 says, be humble and, have, and, and consider others as better than yourselves and have the same mindset that Jesus Christ did in his humility. And what did he do? It goes on to describe, he gave up his place of privilege. He came down to this earth as a human being. He took all kinds of abuse that he did not deserve and he did it to serve other people. He gave up those privileges to come die in our place. He did not demand his own way. But he decided to serve us instead. See, the prideful person says, I have a right to get what I want. The prideful person says, I have a right to get respect. I have a right to be treated a certain way. I have a right to your attention. I have a right to be invited. I have a right to be informed. I have a right to have influence. I have these rights. And even if they don't always act on it, the prideful person will build resentment when they don't get their way. The humble person says, if I don't get my way, I'm okay. If I don't get my way, I'm not going to talk bad about that other person. I'm not going to spread stuff about them. I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to support them. I'm going to speak positively of them to others. I'm I'm going to treat them with kindness. I'm not going to resent them or become bitter. I am truly okay with not getting my way. That is true humility. Whether or not I get the respect that I want or the information I want or the influence I want or whatever it is, it's not about thinking less of yourself. This is the myth of humility. It's not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less and others more. It's not about putting yourself down. It's not about low self-esteem or letting people know that you don't have a high view of yourself. That's not true humility. It's about putting the interests of others ahead of your own and not having to get your own way. Pastor Eric Reed said something a few years ago that has really stuck with me. He said, in all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the person. Isn't that true? The Bible says that Jesus was humble. Now, do you think that Jesus had a low view of himself? 
No. He knew exactly what he was worth. He knew his value. He knew his position. He knew what he could do. Humility is not having a low view of yourself. But he didn't demand his own way. He came to serve, not to be served. In fact, at one point, remember in the garden, when Jesus said this really confusing phrase that trips up theologians all the time, but it teaches us a valuable principle. What did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. And theologians wrestle with that and go, how could they have two different wills and whose will is in charge and all of that stuff? And I don't know what theologically is meant by that other than to say he gave up his preferences. He didn't demand his own way. Whatever his will was in that moment, he was willing to give it up and not get his way so that God the Father could get his way. It's humility. In fact, when Peter saw that Jesus was getting arrested later that night and he came over and he swiped off the ear of the Roman guard and he, and he tried to get Jesus to rise up and defend himself. Jesus said, Peter, what are you doing, man? Do, don't you know who I am? I could call down thousands of angels to come here and defend me, but then I wouldn't get to sacrifice and serve by dying on the cross. I, then I would not get to complete my mission for why I am here. He absolutely could have done that. He knew exactly what he could do and what he was worth, but he didn't demand to get his own way. He served and sacrificed for others. Here's the next one, gentleness. Sometimes it's translated as meekness. Literally, the word is best understood as just the opposite of harshness. In fact, in some languages, that's how they have to translate this. They just use a phrase that means not being harsh with people. And that's how they translate gentleness. All of us have situations where we could act harshly or we could act with gentleness towards someone. We could respond with harshness or with gentleness. When someone says something that upsets us, Our natural response is to want to give some snarky, sarcastic comment, isn't it? To turn the tables on them and say, but yeah, but you did this. And then we go on the offensive and we accuse and and we become harsh in our words and maybe overly critical with people. We lash out with people. Now, at the same time, gentleness does not mean that you ignore wrongdoing. That's not what is meant by gentleness. It just means that you don't deal with it harshly. You deal with it graciously. I have a really uh, good pastor friend back in Virginia who's a psychologist and he's a counselor. And he has a phrase that I must have heard him use just about every week. It's one of his favorite phrases. I think it's really true. He says, sometimes as a Christian and especially as a pastor, you have to be a velvet-covered brick. Don't you love that? You have to be a velvet-covered brick. And that really is what the Bible teaches us. It's not about being a pushover. Gentleness is not being a pushover. You can stand strong and be firm in what you believe and know to be true and in the truths of God's word, and yet at the same time, be loving and kind. That's the velvet-covered brick. Gentleness or meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control. Jesus was gentle, but he was also strong. Jesus was not afraid to call out people who were being sinful, and yet at the same time, he would welcome them into his family if they would repent of their sins. Jesus, who turned over the tables of the money changers, welcomed the innocent little children to come to him. He was a perfect picture of gentleness. The next one is patience. Patience is basically putting up with things we don't like without having a bad attitude. It's putting up with things we don't like without having a bad attitude. Here's how it gets translated in some languages. To remain seated in your heart. To remain seated in your heart. Or in other languages, to keep your heart from jumping. Isn't that beautiful? 
That's the idea of patience, to remain seated in your heart or keep your heart from jumping. Because honestly, when someone does something that hurts or offends you, isn't, isn't there a part of you in your heart that just wants to jump up and say, this isn't fair. You can't do this to me. I deserve better. I deserve to be treated better. And our heart jumps up and leaps to our defense. And so patience is not allowing our heart to jump up and say, I deserve better. It goes along with humility. Kids make this extremely obvious. When a kid thinks something is unfair, they let you know about it right away. They stomp their feet. They throw a temper tantrum. They stand up literally while they're standing up inside. Adults have the exact same reactions. We've just learned better how to mask them, right? We do the same types of things, only instead of us stomping our feet and rolling on the ground and pounding our fists, at least I hope we don't all do that here. Instead, it's inside. We can boil up inside when something happens that we don't like or don't appreciate or that offends us. Patience is remaining seated in your heart, even when something does something that offends or or hurts you. Paul tells us to put on patience, to, to wear it, to put up with people that we don't like without having a bad attitude. And then he says this in verse 13. He says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I was looking at this passage with some pastors and elders earlier this week. We looked up the original language here to kind of see how it was actually worded in the, in the Greek We had a good laugh when we saw the absolutely literal translation, which is endure each other. Isn't there some truth to that? Endure each other. That's just amazing. That's how relationships feel sometimes, don't they? Like we're just having to endure each other. We might be tempted to think that we shouldn't have to endure anything. We shouldn't have to endure someone, but that's our pride speaking in the church. We are commanded to do this, to endure each other. For some of you, this phrase may well pop into your mind on Thursday afternoon. And you're going to be sitting there and someone who's over for family Thanksgiving, if you're you're doing one of those, is going to say something that hurts you or offends you in some way. And and you're going to have, your heart's going to rise up within you and the Holy Spirit's going to just speak to you and say, endure. Endure each other. That's what we're supposed to do in the body of Christ. Make allowance for each other's fault is how it gets translated here in Colossians 3.13, the NLT. Make allowance for each other's faults. The idea is that people have permission to fail. They have permission to fail around us. They don't have to do everything perfectly. They don't have to do everything our way. They don't have to meet our requests or demands or expectations. We make allowance for each other to do things that we don't like. We don't write them off because they make a mistake in our eyes. And when they do make a mistake or offend us in some way, what are we supposed to do? What's it say in verse 13? Forgive anyone who offends you. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. See, the reason we are supposed to forgive is not because they have done something to earn it. It's not because they deserve forgiveness. It's because Jesus Christ has forgiven us for so much more than we could ever expect forgiveness with anyone else. We forgive because of what Jesus did for us, not because of what they do for us. Oh, we would rather hold a grudge. We would rather stay bitter, absolutely. We would rather tell people off for what they did that offended us. But that is quite literally the opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. See, when our forgiveness is based on the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, then there's nothing they have to do to earn it. When our forgiveness of them is based on Jesus Christ's forgiveness of us, then there's no amount of things that are too big or too bold or too horrible for us to be able to forgive. 
There is nothing someone could do to us that requires a bigger amount of forgiveness than Jesus' forgiveness of our sins. That's the idea that Paul wants to get across to us here. Shouldn't Christians be the most gracious and forgiving people on the planet? We have so much reason to forgive others because of how much we have been forgiven. Then finally here, Paul has one more thing he wants us to put on. He says it's the most important thing of all. He says, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Love is the foundation for all the other things. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, all of those other things are built on the foundation of love. In fact, if you have love for people, those things are going to come out naturally. And if you're not displaying those things in your relationships with people, it is a sure sign that there's a lack of love at the core that would lead to those things. Otherwise, it would just be a false presentation anyway. It's impossible to choose to love someone and not display kindness and mercy and gentleness and patience with them. And we aren't really loving them if we don't show those things. Now, we're not talking about the warm, fuzzy emotion of love here. That's kind of how we often view love today. We're talking about real, true, biblical love where we choose to love someone even if we don't feel like it in the moment. That's what real love is all about. Real love is a a choice that is sometimes accompanied by feelings but always results in action. Real love is a choice that is sometimes accompanied by feelings but it always results in action. That's what Paul's saying. This is the most important thing. Above all, clothe yourselves with love. And what happens when we have that kind of love? It's got a powerful effect. Paul says it binds us together in perfect harmony. You could also translate that unity. The love binds us together in the body of Christ in perfect harmony or unity. And here's why. It's really hard to stay divided when you're showing each other love. That's a hard thing to do. A group of people that lives out these values we've talked about today, these heavenly values that we're supposed to put on, will overcome any division. They will unite around the things that matter most. And this is perfect for our church because one of the things we've been talking about here is the undivided mindset, the undivided principles, how there are certain things that are core beliefs that we're going to unite around and agree on and be for each other on. And then there are other things that are secondary issues that we're going to agree to disagree on. And we may have some differences in our convictions and our preferences. There's stuff that goes over here in the primary area, like this is what we're going to unite on, and and if we disagree on this, we may need to divide somewhat. We're still going to do it with love and gentleness and respect, but it, it may be worth dividing over some of these things over here. And then in the secondary category, there's all these other things that we're not going to divide over. Now, I know that there are new people here with us today, and so you may not have gone through the Undivided series yet. So my encouragement for you would be to go to efree.org slash undivided and watch that series, and it will teach you how to know what goes in what category. What goes in the primary category of things that we unite on and we might divide over graciously if we need to, and what goes in the secondary category of things we're okay with disagreeing on. And spoiler alert, there's a whole lot more stuff in the secondary category than there is in the primary category. That means we should not have a lot of things that we have really awful, nasty, bitter disagreements about. There's not a lot of stuff that rises to that level. Most of the things we can just lovingly agree to talk about and agree to disagree on, and that's okay. All of the things that Paul is talking about here, mercy and kindness and gentleness and humility, the point of all of these things that he's been building toward is unity in the body of Christ. That's why he says the most important thing is love, and love binds you all together in unity and harmony. 
It's almost as if Paul knew that churches would struggle, Christians would struggle with being divided against each other. And he's trying to hedge against that. In fact, we've seen throughout this letter that Paul says, hey, you Colossians, you're on the right path. You're doing some good things. Watch out for this stuff. Don't find yourself going off track into these things over here. That's why we call it a rumble strip letter. And so Paul is telling them, make sure you're showing love. Make sure you're showing these other things. Put on these articles of clothing, these heavenly values, so that you won't find yourself splitting up and dividing, but you will be united in harmony, in unity. Paul knew very well the tendency that Christians, that anyone has, but Christians have it too, to divide over minor issues and, and offenses and hurts that get blown out of proportion and that don't get handled biblically. And if we handle them biblically, we will find ourselves united. If we will put on these clothes every day of mercy and gentleness and patience and kindness and love, then we will find that we have an incredible amount of unity. And unity is a priority for the Apostle Paul. And it's a priority for God. It's it's what he's been building toward in this entire segment. How do we stay united? And I want to sum it up this way. I'm going to sum it up like this. Unity in the church matters more than getting our own way. That's sort of how Paul is ending this here. If you have all these things, and if you have love, which is the most important thing that leads to these other things, and they're all tied in and connected together, and if you treat others as better than yourself with humility, and if you don't expect to get your own way, and if you endure each other, make allowance for each other's faults, if you do all these things, then you will be bound together in perfect unity. You won't have division, but you can't expect to always get your own way with people. You have to make allowance for those differences. And so unity in the church matters more than getting our own way. Now, I do want to be realistic about this, especially because there are some new people who are with us this morning, some online and and maybe even some in this room here. There is no such thing as a perfect church. When we talk about unity, we're not talking about perfection. There's no such thing as a perfect church. In fact, if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join it, because as soon as you do, it won't be perfect anymore. There's no such thing as a perfect church. And and if you are new here, and and I know there are some people that are just joining this church in the middle of the pandemic, and you may not have had anyone in this church yet offend you or say something hurtful to you, and I'm just telling you, just give it time. There will be someone at some point that's going to say something to you, that's going to offend you, it's going to bother you, it's going to hurt you, it's going to create some friction and rub you the wrong way, and that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We are sinful people with sinful tendencies. We get on each other's nerves. We rub each other the wrong way. And we can't make sure there will be no disagreements in the church. But we can make sure that when they happen, we deal with them in a biblical, loving way. We respond with grace. We make allowance for each other's faults. We endure each other. We forgive each other, and not because they've earned it, but because of how much forgiveness Jesus has given us. You know, it's a real tragedy But when most people leave the church, they don't do it over category one issues. They don't do it over doctrine or theology. I've never heard anybody say, I don't like that church's doctrine. I disagree with some of their points of doctrine, so I'm never going to go to a church again. Never hear that. What happens when people give up on church is because they saw Christians who didn't live out these principles. They saw Christians who argued and fought over secondary issues. In some cases, they saw their parents who at home would talk about other Christians in a way that showed them that maybe their faith and their belief in these principles wasn't actually genuine. I've seen so many young people abandon the church because they saw the way their parents lived at home and the difference from what they communicated at church, and they went, this can't be real. How can this be real? 
Because yeah, they say that when they're at church, but then they come home and I hear them talk about other people and it's like, that is not a loving way to talk. That is not showing any of these things that the Bible says we're supposed to have. The things the Bible says literally every Christian is supposed to put on. My parents who are supposed to be my role models and examples in the faith, well, why aren't they doing that? And we tragically drive people away from the church when we don't put on these clothes. When we don't show this kind of love for each other. Now, I do need to pause here for a minute before I close because I need to share some balancing principles from Scripture. And this is important just because I know you could sit through a message like this and you could walk away with entirely the wrong impression. I want to just curb that right now. What I am not saying is that no matter what someone does to you, you just have to put up with it. No matter what someone does to you, you just have to take it and keep putting up with it forever. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that you have to stick around for abuse. The Bible does not say that you have to keep being close friends with someone who continues to hurt you. In fact, it says just the opposite. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how if there are people who are living more like the old list we talked about last week than the new list, then you may need to get away from them. You shouldn't have close friends. You still can love them and be kind to them. You can do all of these things, but you don't have to stay close to people who are not healthy to be around. And sometimes healthy boundaries are the most loving thing you can do for someone. It's certainly better for you and your growth, and it may even be better for them and their growth, although that's not your responsibility. But making allowance for other people's faults does not mean you're a doormat. And showing forgiveness does not mean that you don't confront sin. But when you do confront sin, Galatians 6 says you do it with gentleness and respect. See, it's not that you just give up and don't say anything. It's not that you just let everything happen to you. It's that when you do perceive actual sin, not just a a minor offense, but something actually is done wrong to you and you need to confront it, you do it with gentleness and respect. You do it with these values in mind. You don't not do it. Jesus says in Matthew 18, that if someone sins against you or offends you, you are to go to that person alone and share personally and privately what they did so that there can be reconciliation. Maybe they can explain And you realize, oh, that's not how they meant it at all. Okay, I took it the wrong way. Or maybe they realize that they did something wrong and they apologize. Or maybe there's mutual apology for something that happened. But you start there. You start by personally going to them. And by going personally and privately, it's living out this principle of love and gentleness and humility and and not thinking too much of yourself, not demanding your own way. And what happens if that doesn't go well? Jesus says, well, then you bring along a witness, a mature Christian who can come along and help to be kind of a mediator and and be a part of that process. And if that doesn't even go well, then you bring it to church leaders and church leadership gets involved. But there is a biblical process for handling these differences and disagreements that still uses the heavenly values that we're talking about, where you can still wear those clothes of love and gentleness and kindness and patience even in the midst of confronting and setting healthy boundaries. So please don't leave here today without realizing that aspect of love. Now let's talk about one more piece of guidance from Paul. In verse 15 he says, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. Let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ should have charge of your hearts. And as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. Let me put that in a different way just to help us understand the principle here. When the peace of Christ is in charge of our hearts, the body of Christ has peace. When the peace of Christ is in charge of our hearts, the body of Christ has peace. Show me a person who causes division among people, and I will show you someone who has a restless soul. 
who is tossed around by wanting their own preferences and by their own self-centeredness and and the stress of not getting their way. Listen, letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts is such a better way to live. It means we acknowledge that we aren't in charge and we don't need to be. It means that we recognize that nothing happens without God allowing it. And hey, if God allowed it, then why should I be so upset about it? He promises to work all things out for good to those who love him. If God is truly sovereign and he's allowed this thing, then there's really no reason I ever have to be upset about everything. And believe me, I'm not saying this as a person who has this all figured out. This is something I wrestle with all the time. I think we all do. But if we just think about it, letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, have charge of our hearts, it's a better way to live. It helps us to overlook all kinds of problems that could cause us to have resentment and bitterness, and that's not the way God wants us to live. If we really believe this, then there's not a lot in this world that should really get us upset. And I know we all feel like there's a lot that we could be upset over. No matter who you are, there's stuff out there that you read that you could get upset over, and we don't need to. The peace of Christ can rule in our hearts. And then this can be true as well. At the very end, he says, and always be thankful. Always be thankful. It's really hard to be thankful when you're always upset at other people because your mind gets clouded by those bitter thoughts. It's almost like a force field pops in that keeps the thankfulness from hitting you, from recognizing the things you have to be thankful for when the truth is we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? I mean, think about it. How much do you have to be thankful for? Just the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross for you to save your sins and separate you from sinfulness. All the stuff we've been talking about for the last several weeks, that's something to be thankful for. And our relationships and our friendships and creation and food and shelter. And there's so many things that we have to be thankful for, but bitterness and resentment and the things, the friction that causes us between people, that's like a force field that keeps us from thinking about those things. And yet Paul is saying, always be thankful. There is a time to be thankful. And that time is always. And maybe this is the week to embrace that more. It's kind of fitting, don't you think? Maybe this is the week to put aside all of the things that have been between you and other people and say, I'm going to let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. I'm not going to allow bitterness to be there. I'm going to treat people with kindness and humility and gentleness. And I'm not going to expect to get my own way. And I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to choose to focus my thoughts on being thankful instead of all the things that could cause me bitterness and resentment. Now, I want to offer something to help us with this. Paul said the most important thing we should clothe ourselves with is love. And if we do that, we will all be bound together in perfect unity or harmony in the body of Christ. That was his desire for us. That's God's desire for us. I want to offer something to you that could help us to do that in this church. Whether you're in this room or watching online right now, you can do this. I want to give you a challenge for the next six weeks. I'm not going to give you all the details today. I want to give you one challenge, one mission every single week to do something loving for someone else in the church. Could be someone that you know already, could be someone new that, you're, that you don't know very well, but someone different every week. Do something loving for them. I'll give you a specific challenge in your inbox. All you have to do is go to efree.org updates and sign up for senior pastor updates. I'll send out the first one this week. Go to efree.org updates and sign up for senior pastor updates if you haven't already. I know a lot of you have. And every week I'm going to send you a new challenge. A different challenge of something encouraging and loving to do for someone else in the church. And just imagine with me for a moment 
if everyone does this. You know, there, there are a bunch of people in this room right now. We're scattered all over the place. Did you know that there are like three times as many people watching online right now? There are a lot, and there were a bunch of people in the early service online as well. There are a lot of people in this local body of Christ. Can you imagine if there were hundreds of lines of love and care taking place across our church for the rest of this year? We're about to go into a very difficult season, I think. I think we are going to face some, some discouragement and some depression. And yet, as the body of Christ, we're supposed to build each other up in love. This is one way I think we can do it. Let's all take part in the love challenge together and do loving things for each other in the body of Christ so that everyone gets built up and we can encourage each other and keep each other going through a difficult time. It's one way that we can put on what Paul is talking about here. Hey, if you need prayer this morning for anything, we'll be available after the service up front or in the lobby. If you want to pray with one of us, we're here for you. Or if you'd rather remain distant, that's totally understandable. efree.org slash connect is a place where you can submit prayer requests. Or if you're online right now, let us know if you have any prayer requests. We'd be happy to pray for you. And I'm going to pray for you right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you for this letter to the Colossians. It seems so timely for today, Lord. It's such a struggle for us in these relationships we have. Even in the body of Christ, the place where you'd expect there would be so much graciousness and forgiveness because we would just overwhelm with the love that we have from you. And yeah, that happens when we first trust in Jesus. There's usually that period of time where like nothing can upset us. Then over time, that fades away. And Lord, maybe that's true for some people in this room or watching online right now. God, I pray that you would help us to put these clothes on this week. Help us to wear love. Help us to wear mercy and kindness and patience and gentleness and humility and forgiveness, Lord. Help us to live out these truths in the body of Christ, to to take the love challenge and to build each other up so that at least in this church, and we pray this for all churches around the world, but at least in this church, Lord, let us be a church that doesn't have division or strife or friction, but has unity, united in perfect harmony, built up by love. We trust you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.